I had read the Bible many times through, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the words, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing of all places, I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture, and that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed in my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. Welcome back to Lecture Me. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is a former tenured professor at Syracuse University and holds a PhD in English Literature and Cultural Studies from The Ohio State University. What began as an academic exercise to find fault with Scripture and expose the darker side of Christianity ended with answers and a changed life that resonates in today's culture. So without spoiling the details, let's hear about her journey from the LGBT community and her discovery of God through His Word. I had a normal childhood, whatever that means. My parents raised me in the Catholic faith, and I attended predominantly Catholic schools. My liberal Catholic all-girl high school discipled me in the life skills that I use today. I learned there to read deeply and well, to diagram a sentence before I tried to interpret it, and to look out for the unloved and draw them in. I had a heterosexual adolescence. In college, I met my first boyfriend and it was a heady experience. At the same time, an undercurrent of longing inserted itself in my intense friendships with women. I didn't make much of this at first. I simply felt a sense of longing and connection, but this started to topple over the edges for my women friends. The repetitious sensibility rooted and grew. I merely preferred the company of women. In my late 20s, enhanced by feminist philosophy and lesbian and gay political advocacy, my homosocial preference morphed into homosexuality. That shift was subtle, not startling. My lesbian identity and my love for my LGBT community developed in sync with my lesbian sexual practice. Life finally came together for me and made sense. I studied Freud. I cheered that the DSM had long since removed homosexuality from its list of disorders, thus rendering homosexuality in the eyes of the world and the academy normal. With no prohibitions or constraints, by the time I had graduated from Ohio State with my PhD in English Literature and Critical Theory, I left the Buckeye State with my first lesbian partner. We moved to New York for me to begin a tenure-track position in the English department at Syracuse University. My life as a lesbian seemed normal. I considered it an enlightened, chosen path. Lesbianism felt like a cleaner and more moral choice. Always preferring symmetry to asymmetry, I believed I had found my real self. What happened in my Catholic training? I believe now that it was hogwash, hocus-pocus, and hooey. The name of Jesus, which had rolled off my tongue in a little girl's prayer, then rolled off my back in college, now made me recoil with anger. As a professor of English and women's studies, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion. 
fervent for the world views of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin, I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality. My life at this time was happy, meaningful, and full. My next lesbian partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS activism, children's health and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, just to name a few. It was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The LGBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. Indeed, I hone the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife in my queer community. I began researching the religious right and their politics of what I perceived to be hatred against people like me. To do this, I began reading the Bible while looking for some Bible scholar to help me wade through this complex book. I took note that the Bible was an engaging literary display of every genre and trope and type. It had edgy poetry, deep and complex philosophy, and compelling narrative stories. It also embodied a worldview that I hated. Sin, repentance, Sodom and Gomorrah, absurd. At this time, the promise keepers came to town and parked their little circus at the university. And on my war against stupid, I wrote an article published in the local newspaper. It was 1997. The article generated many rejoinders, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail and one for fan mail. One letter that I received defied my filing system. It was from Ken Smith, the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, he shared his love for the Bible, his concern that college students were not reading the Bible as part of a literature curriculum, and he described Jesus as someone who entered into history, not someone who emerged from it. I thought that was insane. I, be I just did. I believe that people proceed from history and are shaped for good or for ill by the culture that molds them. I didn't know how to respond to the letter, so I threw it away. And later that night, I fished it out of, the out of the department's recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with a worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialist worldview. But Christianity is a supernatural worldview. If I was going to understand how this book, the Bible, got so many people off track and how this man Jesus persuaded so many people to follow him, Ken's letter showed me that I needed to understand Christianity as a supernatural idea. At this point in my life, the category of the supernatural was reserved for Stephen King novels, which is not a throwaway line because at Syracuse, Stephen King is a big donor, and where you could stick in, an, where you could stick in a novel, you did. You got a little thumbs up. With the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. That Christians who mocked me at gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved was going to hell was as clear as the sky is blue. But Ken's letter did not mock. It engaged. 
and so when he invited me to dinner at his house to discuss these matters more fully, I accepted. My motives at the time were clear. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife Floy and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. Ken and Floyd omitted two important steps in the rule book of how Christians should deal with a heathen like me. Number one, they did not share the gospel with me. And number two, they did not invite me to church. And because of these omissions to the Christian rule book, I knew that when Ken extended his hand to me in friendship, it was safe to close my hand in his. I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly, reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand and notebook in lap. I read the way a glutton devours. Slowly and over time, the Bible started to take on a life and meaning that startled me. Some of my well-worn paradigms just no longer stuck. I at least had to ponder the hermeneutical claim that this book was different from all the others because it was inspired by a holy God and inherently true and trustworthy. And this led me to go through the presuppositional truth claims just to check the math of the logic here. And the logic claims go like this. Number one, if this book was written by men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, then its admonitions about sin were not applied cultural phobia, which is what I had thought they were. Why? Because God's goodness, unrestrained by time, anticipates and guards against the ill treatment of a people group. And number two, if God is the creator of all things, and if the Bible has his seal of truth and power, then the Bible had the right to interrogate my life and my culture, not the other way around. Even as a postmodern reader, I understood the idea that authority can only depend on that which is higher than itself. Who is higher than God? I wondered. At a dinner gathering that my partner and I were hosting, my transgendered friend Jay cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine and said, Rosaria, this Bible reading is changing you. I felt exposed. I felt like I was going to throw up. I collapsed in the chair and I exhaled and I said, but what if it's true? What if Jesus is real and risen? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply and sat down in the chair across from mine. Her eyes looked wise and she said, Rosaria, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. The next day when I returned home from work, I found two large milk crates spilling over with theological books, Jay's books. She was giving them to me. In Kelvin's Institutes, in the margins of the exposition of the Book of Romans, in Jay's handwriting, was a warning. Watch Romans 1. This is where I will fall. And this is what Romans 1 says. 
this is Romans 1, picking up at 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts in their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. The passage goes on. Look at the verb clauses here. Did not honor God, did not give thanks, engaged in futile speculations, became fools, exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible. God gives us over to our lusts, and when we look at the world through our lusts, we dishonor our bodies and we worship the world. This verse seemed to provide a haunting literary echo to Genesis 3, where Eve's desire to live independently of God's authority made perfect sense to me. If I were Eve, I would have done the same thing. And at the same time, Eve's and then Adam's seemingly innocent sin served as the leverage for the whole world to come tumbling down, fierce and fast, bloody and brilliant. The two verses, one in Genesis and one in Romans, stood out as bookends of my life. Not just my life, that's the rub. Genesis 3 and Romans 1 stood out as bookends, or the table of contents, of what ails the world. Indeed, Romans 1 does not end by highlighting homosexuality as the worst and most extreme example of the sin of failing to give God glory for creating us. Here is where the passage finds its crescendo. Quote, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That last line really hit me between the line. Homosexuality then, at least according to the Bible, is not the end point of the problem, not for God or for the world. But it is presented here as one step in the journey. Homosexuality seemed then consequential, not causal. According to the Bible itself, homosexuality then was not the root of all sin, not even the root of my sin. This stopped me in my tracks. Somehow, it was easier to hate the Bible when it squared off against me. But now that it was getting under my skin, it became a foe of a different kind. So I tried to toss the Bible and its teachings in the trash. I really tried. But Ken was my friend at this point, and he encouraged me to keep reading. And I only did it because I trusted him. And as I read and reread the Bible, I kept catching my wings in its daily embrace. I was fighting the idea that the Bible is inspired and inerrant, that is, that its meaning and purpose has a holy and supernatural authority that has protected it over the years of its canonicity, and that it is the repository of truth. How could a smart cookie like me believe these kinds of things? 
I didn't even believe in truth. I was a postmodernist. I believed in truth claims. I believe that the reader constructed the text, that a text meaning found its power only in the reader's interpretation of it. Without a reader, a book is just paper and glue, I told my students over and over again. How could this one book lay claim to a birthright and a progeny different from all the others? That this book was supernatural was becoming more and more evident to me, and my hermeneutical bag of tricks had no system of containment for it. As I was reading and discussing these things with Ken, he pointed out to me that Jesus is the word made flesh, and that knowing Jesus demands embracing the Jesus of the Bible not the Jesus of someone's imagination, the whole Bible, even the places that took my life captive. And after years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world, and I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken and Floyd, and two years after I started reading the Bible for my research, I left the home that I shared with my lesbian partner, and an hour later, I sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous of my appearance, I reminded myself that I came there to meet God, not to fit in. Ken was preaching through the Gospel of Matthew with its bewildering cast of characters and problems, unsuspecting folks separated unto the Gospel, seeds choked by the world, feeding thousands with some nameless kids bread and fish. You know, I always felt sorry for that kid. Did you? I mean, just, that was lunch, man. Then Jesus' cutting question to impetuous Peter, do you still lack understanding? Followed by Pastor Ken's steel blue eyes and a long pause before he turned this question on us. Congregation, did Christ ever say this to you? This startled me. I hadn't heard preaching before. I didn't know pastors did that sort of thing. It seemed kind of invasive to me, asking personal questions like that. It startled me because this was my question. This question was for me. Do I still lack understanding? Who is speaking here? The man behind the pulpit or the God-man behind the foundation and redemption of his people? And the image that crashed like waves in a raging sea of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell, just vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. Not primarily because we were gay, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous. It was our hearts first. Our bodies followed. I got it. I heard it, finally. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math. This was my crucible, and it is my crucible. If the Bible is true, I was dead. And if the Bible is false, I am the biggest fool on earth. That's true. <laughs> but God's promises rolled in like another round of waves into my world. One Lord's Day, Ken was preaching on John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. This verse exposed the quicksand in which my feet were stuck. I was a thinker. I was paid to read books and write about them. I expected that in all areas of my life, understanding came before obedience, not the other way around. I wanted God to show me on my terms why homosexuality was a sin. I wanted to be the judge, not the one being judged. 
Perhaps I thought like Eve in the garden. I wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that I could become and replace God. I wondered, hadn't I already done this? Hadn't we all? If my consciousness fell in Adam's sin, as the Bible purports, no wonder why I couldn't think my way out of this quandary. This wasn't a game of thinking or of matching of wits. The question was, could my heart echo God's call for obedience? Could I will to do God's will just this once? The stakes were so very high. They always are. But this verse promised obedience. I promised understanding after obedience. And I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed that God would make me a godly woman. I prayed that God would give me the faith to repent of my sin at its root. But what is the root of my sin, I wondered. How does one repent of a sin that doesn't feel like sin at all, but rather normal, not bothering another soul kind of life? How had I come to this place? What exactly is the sin of sexual identity? I was a jumble of emotions, but I prayed that the Lord would help me to see my light from his point of view. And the next morning, when I woke up and I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. And I felt the same. But when I looked in the mirror of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide the soul and the spirit, judge the thoughts and the hearts and the intentions of man, could he not make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me to be? I still felt like a lesbian in my heart and my body. That was, I felt my real identity. But what is my true identity, I wondered. See, the Bible makes clear that there's a difference between the real and the true. They have a troubled relationship with each other this side of eternity. For many people in the Bible, their true identity and calling comes only after a long struggle with God, with wilderness, with dreams and hopes and plans. The Bible makes clear that my future and my calling always echo an attribute of God. Obedience constrains. It always mirrors suffering, as every selection implies a sacrifice. What is bigger, my lesbian identity and the feminist and postmodern worldview that fuels it, or God's authority over me and holy sovereignty over the world? Who is this Jesus? Did I know him? Did I still lack understanding? Could I trust him? And then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus. No altar calls in a Reformed Presbyterian church, so no fanfare or manipulation. Probably the guy sitting next to me had no idea what I was going through. <laughs> we were singing from Psalm 119, 56. This has become mine because forever all thy precepts I preserve. After I sang it, I checked it in the Bible just to make sure the Psalter got it right, thinking, oh no. Because after I sang these words, something shifted. Two weight-bearing walls collapsed in my mind. This Bible was not mine. I had scorned it, 
and cursed it and despised it. But I had been reading and rereading it, and the use of the helping verb in the Bible has, as in has become, troubled me. See, two years of laborious reading, and by the way, if you read the Bible this way in two years, you, you read it through many times, so you get a good grasp of it. Two years of laborious reading embodies the helping verb has. It shows process, journey, pilgrimage, and danger. But I was not in Christ, and therefore could not possibly keep these precepts, God's law, not in word, heart change, or deed. And here was the shattering of the second wall. I had read the Bible many times through, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself that it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the words, this has become mine, came out of my mouth in congregational singing of all places, I was attesting to this one simple truth, that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture, and that I truly wanted to both hear God's voice breathed in my life, and I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle, was my open highway to a holy God. My hands let go of the wheel of self-invention. I came to Jesus alone, open-handed and naked. I had no dignity upon which to stand. It was a crushing revelation. It was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time. In this war of worldviews, Ken and Floyd were there. The church, who had been praying for me for years, they were there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. I lost everything but the dog, and he was a good dog. <laughs> of course, there is only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. And repentance is bittersweet business. Repentance is not just a conversion exercise. It is the posture of the Christian, much like tree or full lotus is the posture of the yogi. Repentance is our daily fruit, our hourly washing, our minute-by-minute -minute wake up call, our reminder of God's creation, Jesus's blood, and the Holy Spirit's comfort. Repentance is the only no-shame solution to a renewed Christian conscience because it only proves the obvious. God was right all along. I speak today about matters that happened over a decade ago. God has taken me on a long journey. And like most pilgrimages, mine seems to engender more questions than answers. But in the time that we have left, I want to take up one question about sexuality and the Christian faith, whose biblical answer holds out the hope to lovingly lead our hearts, minds, and culture into submission to the God who made us all. Here is the question, and it's a real question, and as you might imagine, I get asked this question many times in every day. Why did I have to give up my girlfriend for Christ? Why couldn't I have both? After all, can't someone believe in Jesus and be gay? So let's unpack this, because this is at the root of many of the issues right now that are dividing us. 
One, can someone struggle with homoerotic attraction and be a faithful believer in Christ's atoning work? Yes. Jesus was tempted at all things, and so too are we. Two, but can someone unrepentingly embrace and deny as sin homoerotic lust, allowing it to flourish and root as a practice and an identity, and then add Jesus to this identity, and then call this the Christian faith? No. Why no? Why isn't this no an example of homophobia in its rejection of the idea that the individual sets the terms of her own sexual identity? What about people whose gender identity is clearly liminal or people who genuinely perceive themselves to be born with a deep and abiding and unrelenting sense of gay identity and selfhood? What about them? Well, I think we're all in the same boat. I do. In the book Red Like Blood, the authors put it this way. There are millions of ways to be broken and one way to be made whole. I think that clarifies things. So let's think this through. Salvation begins with God's sovereign initiation, not with my intellectual set assent to a moral framework about normative sexuality or a set of ideas or a desire to get rich or have a happy life. It is a dangerous lie to say that Christians are people who merely believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe in Jesus. Of course, lies are called half-truths for a reason. Dangerous ideas often contain large dollops of truth. The idea that a Christian is merely someone who believes in Jesus is the whopper deception of this present age. After God's sovereign initiation, after the Holy Spirit removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, we fall on our faces as we hear the still, small voice of God. We relinquish our lives to him as his sovereign grace commands this. We relinquish all of it. We keep nothing back. This includes our sexuality. We were born this way. We were all born this way. This is what it means to have Adam as our representative head. This is what it means to be born with original sin. So how do we hear God? Is it an audible voice? No. God speaks to us through the language of the Bible. We train our ears to hear the Lord by drinking deeply of his holy word. We commit our lives to the Jesus of the Bible, the word made flesh who came to fulfill the whole law, every jot and tittle. We do not use our personal experience to verify or, valid or validate God's commands. The Christian faith is not a pragmatist's paradigm. We die to the old man or woman and become alive to Christ, or we do not know him. He is the potter, we are the clay. In sanctification, we synergistically work with God to grow in likeness of Jesus by drinking deeply of the means of grace, Bible reading, psalm singing, worship, taking the sacraments, church membership, fellowship with other believers, the perseverance of the saints. In so doing, we take our rightful place as sons and daughters of the covenant. We do not look to ourselves to see if we measure up. We look to Christ. When Jesus died and rose again, he gave sin a mortal blow. Thomas Brooks compares our sin to a tree that has been cut at the root. 
The tree may pop a few leaves, but its inevitable fate is death, and so too we see our sin. It no longer comes at us with full potency. It is a snake with its jaws wired shut. Sin may sucker punch us, but never slay us, because Christ's death gave sin its inevitable death. If you are in Christ, then you are growing in sanctification. This is how Christ heals us from the consequences of our sin, whatever that sin may be, by giving us daily victory over it, by never divorcing us, even when we fail and are weak, and by giving himself to us as an example. And consider this. This is Thomas Brooks again. Christ did not die all at once upon the cross. And so also the slaying of sin is gradual in the souls of the saints. Sexual sin has many tendrils. But Christ's stripes, by his stripes, we are healed. He pours the supernatural balm of Christian victory into the grooves of our sin patterns until the holes are filled with his grace and until attacks and seductions no longer stop us in our tracks. And that is what it means to be a new creature in Christ. God separates us unto the gospel to reveal his son in us and recognizing that God gave us our will, we put our will on the altar. We use God's vocabulary and God's dictionary. We call sin, sin, no matter what our personal feelings are on the subject. We call grace, grace, and we drink deeply from its well. We are God's image bearers, and we encourage other image bearers to spend more time looking at the original than at the reflection. We do not domesticate sin by calling it something else. Am I healed? Yes, my life bears the fruit. Am I changed? Yes, from the root. Have I forgotten from where I came? No, I have not. And this takes us to the flip side of the coin. Remember the question? The question was, can a person be unrepentingly gay and Christian? If the answer is, as I suggest, no, then what is the Christian response to our family and our friends in the lesbian and gay community? For that, we need to turn to Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he, the Father, chose us in him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So last month, someone said this to me, Rosaria, give up this ministry. It is dangerous and unnecessary. Those people are going straight to hell anyway. But you see, I believe that God's elect people are also in the gay and lesbian community. And that changes everything. Ezekiel 37.3 puts it this way. Son of man, can these bones live what about my bones or your bones? Were they somehow less dead? Do we remember the humbling moment when we first knocked at God's door standing there, the crucified thief? That's who we are when we knock at God's door. 
To this you might say, Rosaria, if God's elect people are in the gay and lesbian community, why aren't they rushing to our churches saying, how can we be saved? Why instead do we see whole branches of the Christian faith rejecting orthodoxy for revisionism, domesticating the sin of homosexuality, and declaring a false peace? Dear Christian, is it possible that we are in no small part to blame for this? Homosexuality is a sin, but so is homophobia. Now, what is homophobia? It is the unrestrained fear of gay and lesbian people and the wholesale writing off of their souls. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now think about this. What if the way of escape for our loved ones in the lesbian and gay community is your house or my house? What if it's your church or my church? Have we created a culture of friendship that allows us to see into the image bearers that God has put before us? Or have we written them off as well? David Clausen, the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at FRC, is back with us to talk about Rosaria's journey and how we can learn from her experience. David, welcome back to Lecture Me. Hey, it's great to be back, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we just can't keep you away, you know. Hey, David, this, is, this is a great podcast, and I love listening to these lectures and discussing them, so it's great to be here, man. It's the number one podcast in the world right now, actually, according to um, my assistants, who are non-existent. Uh, yeah, we just can't keep you away. I, I know you've been asking me on a basically daily basis to come back, and I said, no, 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 and uh, you convinced me. I'm just glad to be here. <laughs> We're glad to have you. So Biblical Worldview, you are basically one of our number one guys to ask about this sort of stuff because um, Dr. Butterfield, you know, when she went through this whole process, when you you read her book and you, and you listen to this whole lecture, you know, she almost kind of looked at this from a, a scholarly point of view, like as if she were a Bible student, and you, I think, have studied the Bible in a similar way, you know, go through this exegesis over, over years, and I think can understand where she was coming from. So it, it seems like she's asking all the right questions as she was going through this process when she was trying to sort of debunk everything, and that was what led her to actually, you know, despite trying to turn Christianity on its head, it turned her on her own head. So... What do you think is different about that from other experiences that kind of primed her for the conversion? Yeah, that's a great question, Matthew. And so this lecture that she gave here at FRC was actually when she was pitching her book. Um, that's a couple years, I think it came out in 2013, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. Mm -hmm. And I actually read her book when I was in seminary at Southern Seminary, and it is just a, a fascinating read. Uh, so if, if you enjoyed the lecture she gave here at FRC, I highly encourage our listeners to get a copy of her book as well, mm -hmm. because she tells the story of she you know, like you know she was is an academic dream. She's a, has she's achieved tenure. She's teaching in a field that she loves, 
Um, and, and at the time, she was an outspoken uh, lesbian. She, she was living with her partner and was an activist in the LGBT community. And she said that she found that life uh, style fulfilling and she was thriving. Right. But then as she details in the lecture and in her book, uh, she encountered Christianity. And like you said, she kind of almost uh, stumbled into it in a way uh, where she was kind of undertaking a study of the Bible, trying Mm -hmm. to expose it and whatnot. And then she encountered the truth of the gospel. But not only did she, and I'm sure we can talk about this, not only did she uh, encounter God through his word, she encountered God through the community of a church right there outside of Syracuse. And she, that's what was so interesting, is she said as she began studying the Bible, she not only began to study God's Word, but she began to study God's people. And she found that there was something attractive about the Christian hospitality that she saw uh, embodied in the church. Right, so it's almost like what really necessitated besides the Word was it's, you know, having the community, the, the right person and the right people at the right time that primes her to sort of seeing the Bible, I guess, in a different way through that example, right? It was, it was Ken, the, the pastor, who she said ap- approached her in a totally different way. And uh, that, that brings me into thinking about how she ended up talking. And she went into this in, in the uh, Q&A a little bit about how, how we approach uh, talking to people in the LGBT community about the Bible, and I was actually a little surprised because she was saying Christians are a little squeamish about bringing the Bible in, and, and we shouldn't have to do that, and that, we're, we're, that we took the hinges off the argument by saying, let's make a moral argument and not bring the Bible into it. That's how I always thought. I mean, I, even to this day, I think, well, if these people don't take the Bible author- as authoritative, how do we bring in that context? I mean, you know, you've got natural law where people can sort of understand these things without necessarily having the Bible. So I thought that was a good way of doing it. But she's making this different argument that saying LGBT community is bringing in these these highbrow ontological arguments and that we're saying these things like like we we take some Bible verse and throw it at them and it, and it's really bad. So what do you what's your take on that? So a couple things. Um one, you're absolutely right in her meeting with this pastor. It's really interesting. She really goes into detail about this in the book that she kind of expected him to just be a, a Bible thumping, uh, you know, not very concerned about engaging her right. as a human being. Right. And I think that really uh, she was uh, almost unnerved by how he cared for her and wanted to have conversation right. and pointed to uh, God's word. And that, that brings me to the, the question you just asked. And I think as Christians, um, we need to realize that our authority, first and foremost, is God's Word. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Second Timothy, Paul writes that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is mm-hmm. profitable uh, for teaching, for rebu- rebuking, and reproving, that the man of God may be trained up in all righteousness. And so as Christians, we need to realize that, yes, all truth— Anything that is truly true is God's truth. And, and so where natural law is uh, true, I, you know, in the marriage debates, uh, you had a lot of Protestant and Catholic thinkers, Ryan Anderson, Sharif Gurgis, uh, Robbie George, make really uh, good, persuasive natural law arguments. And th- those mm-hmm. are good. We don't want to throw those out. Um, right. Philosophy and theology uh, go together. Right. Um, but as Christians, let's—and uh, Dr. Butterfield did a really good job pointing this out— God's Word is our foundation. That's the only sure foundation that we have. 
Um, and so we mm-hmm. need to, when we're engaging uh, people in the LGBT, LGBT community or, or those that know people in the LGBT community that want to be a faithful gospel witness, uh, we should not shy away from bringing God's Word into the conversation. Right. I think it's important to say, because uh, God's Word speaks clearly on homosexuality, on same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, I was writing on Romans 1, verses 24 through 27. It is very clear, uh, the moral status of homosexuality. But it's important for us also to say that the Bible has a lot more to say to homosexuals and those in the LGBT, LGBT community uh, then homosexuality is a sin. They need to hear that message in the context of the whole gospel message, which is that all people can be reconciled to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's the famous verse, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 15, that we mm-hmm. need to speak the truth in love. And it's, we, we say that so much it almost becomes cliche, but it is so right. true that all sinners, no matter what kind of sin you feel yourself drawn toward, um, need the gospel, which is the message uh, that sinful people can be reconciled to holy God. Right. She says Romans 1. I remember that that was one of the most memorable points. It's actually very moving the way that she conveys her experience where she's reading it uh, and how that sort of got her. And I thought, that's great. And I understand that. And like we understand. I think a lot of these people who listen, who are listening understand that. Um, but then, you know, like I have all these atheist uh, friends who you know they just don't they don't accept it and it's really difficult so i was i was surprised what makes it so surprising is that she went in to the bible in like a hostile way you know right she's trying to be sort of academic about it but it was essentially hostile and that it still turned her around so i think um to me it's like that's a fortunate case but uh i think there's people who you know, it, it's just, I think, impossible to know exactly where they're at and, and what's going to sort of work for them and and not, you know? Yeah, and I'd say Dr. Butterfield's story is a reminder uh, that God's Word does not return void. Uh, right. We're, we're not uh, converted. Uh, we don't come to Christ through, necessarily through these rational arguments, but it's real power, and real power is found in God's mm-hmm. Word. And, and that's what Dr. Butterfield encountered uh, through her study of Scripture and through what she saw enacted um, in, in the pastor's house that she began visiting, as well as when she started attending his church. And, that, and I think that's a, she brings up right. this point as well, which is important, is that one of the things that was so difficult for her to leave the LGBT lifestyle and community was the loving community that she found herself. Uh, she, she said she loves uh, the LGBT community even to this day, that they're, they're mm-hmm. a community that's closely knit. And then she was almost surprised to see when she got started to get plugged into the church that there's a similar close-knit community, a, a real fellowship uh, that believers have when they gather around God's Word, when they take the sacraments together. And that was just really neat to hear her describe the importance of God's people gathering again his preached word um, as a significant part of her conversion. It's interesting that the thing that interested me the most when I was listening was how she talked about going to Ken's house, to the pastor, um, and how he'd sat down and had this, I think she said, like, quiet, masculine, not masculine, it was like a like a quiet power or 
So, you know, the, the idea that it wasn't so forceful. Did she, t- she talked about that in the book, I think, right? You read the book. Yes. Did yes. she go into a lot of detail about, like, what the nature of those conversations was? Yes, yeah, she does. She, she, again, in the book's titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, she has a second book that's come out yeah. um, on hospitality, mm-hmm. uh, which just underscores how significant Christian hospitality was for her own conversion and how, you know, and her burden coming out of that LGBT community is wanting to see more and more people come out of that community and get plugged into the church. And she, I think, uh, the the title of her second book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Uh, just talking about, (laughs) and that comes from her experiences, those early experiences she had with Pastor Ken, uh, just seeing what Christian hospitality looks like when it's Mm -hmm. practiced well. It is, and I think she said this, you know, when Pastor Ken uh, was talking to her, he wasn't just talking at her, uh, he was right. uh, with her, right. and he was wanting to do life with her, right. and, and that showed her that this man was for real. He wasn't just, right. uh, you know, seeing her as a sinner, he saw her as someone made in God's image, uh, possessing inherent value and dignity, which was what she was not expecting right. uh, from a Christian pastor. Right. He wrote that letter, right? I think that was their first the first point of contact was where he wrote a letter to her, and it was challenging her. That was what she said was sort of challenging. I think that's also what appealed to her as like an academic was, okay, I need to address this point by point and really know what I'm talking about. And so she thought she, you know, she would go in and get to understand this guy so she could attack the argument. So I think that when she said she, uh, he disarmed her, right, by asking questions, it's not like you're pointing your finger and saying, the Bible says blah, blah, blah. He's, he's saying, well, how do you square that uh, with with X Y Z, that's the thing I wanted to know about the see because she didn't go too much into the into the lecture on that that I that makes it you know it makes you want to actually go read the book and see more about what was going on there, but the one of the most moving things I think she said at the very end that I just wanted to comment here um, at the at the end of her lectures is before they went into Q and A was what if the way for escape for our loved ones in the LGBT community is our home or our church, right? Because she says it because that's what it was for her. And what we've got Have we created a culture of friendship that allows us to see into the image bearers that God has put before us, or have we written them off as well? And that, I want to know how you think we can take that. Uh, practically speaking, letting those people know, because if you come up to them and you're a Christian, they think, well, this guy already judges me, and they kind of have that going on. So how do we let them know whether implicitly or explicitly what how, how we when we tell them that you're loved we love you and we actually care about you despite the fact that you think because of our views that we hate you or or think you're you're condemned already you know, right I, someone else who's written on this that's helpful is sam alberry he's a same-sex attracted anglican priest mm-hmm. who is celibate uh he's committed to god's word and he has helpful resources and what uh, Sam Alberry and Dr. Butterfield have both argued, and I think this is a, a, a timely word for us, is that we're uh, being naive if we think that there are not people in our pews who go to church with us, who are in our Bible studies with mm-hmm. us, who are not experiencing uh, same-sex attraction. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. There are people in our midst who uh, are struggling with this. Yeah. And I think the, the first word that we need to have to those people is not... Ew! What, what's wrong with you? Uh, there, there, there's something. Particular. I mean, to be fair, I've never heard anyone actually say that to someone. 
fair, fair but I think sometimes the attitude the, when we talk about these things is, oh my goodness, there must be something wrong with you. Right. But as Christians, we need to realize that we live in a Romans 3 world where all of our affections have been disordered. And for different people, that's going to look like, that's going to look different. And so for some people, they're going to maybe lean in the direction of same-sex attraction where others mm-hmm. are going to lead uh, toward excessive pride yeah. or, or, or excessive lust, uh, same-sex right. or right. opposite sex. Well, so first of all, what we need to realize is that there are people in our midst who are dealing with these issues, so we need to be the people, we need to be the people of God who love them, who practice hospitality, and that can look very mm. practical. Uh, do we open up our homes to single people? Um, mm. You know, I think the church I go to here in D.C. has a lot of single people, and our our pastors constantly telling the married couples to make sure they're inviting single people over to their homes, opening up their homes, sharing a meal. Because, right. uh, again, the church needs to be a, a safe, welcoming, affirming place yeah. uh, for people who have questions, who have these disordered affections, because we all do. That's interesting, because I'm married, been married almost three years, and you know how it sort of works where I guess when you're married, you really only think to invite other married couples because there's that sort of, you have that shared um, experience of being married and that sort of thing. So that, that's interesting to hear. But that reminded me of what she did, right? She said uh, when you were talking about whatever, the sins that we have, she's saying there, there are a million different, something to the effect of there's a million different ways that we are disordered or have sin, right? And there's only one cure, one answer, which is Jesus Christ. And that, and this is just one of those many ways. And I think that's what put it in contact. You can almost hear like this gap from people in the audience, like, "Oh, wow, yes, that's right, that's right." Anyway, David, it was great to have you. Uh, maybe we'll have, you know, we had Dr. Butterfield here for another one. Maybe that's another one we could address for the future. But uh, really great insights, and it's always a pleasure to have you, Mr. Clausen. How do you pronounce it? Clausen. Are you sure it's not Clausen? I heard people around saying it that way. We have some interesting co-weekers, but hey, always a pleasure to join you on the Lecture Me podcast. All right. Thanks, David. For more, go to frc.org slash podcasts or find Lecture Me wherever you listen to podcasts.